Who Rules the World? A new podcast by European Union youth delegates Lucia and Nadia on SoundCloud and other platforms. I am Lucia. And I'm Nadia. In Who Rules the World podcast, we will talk about the European Union and United Nations and all the burning world issues that our generation will have to face when our time comes to rule the world. Welcome to the first ever episode of European Youth Delegates to the United Nations podcast, Who Rules the World? The inaugural episode of the podcast is devoted to a very important day, 24th of October, which marks the United Nations Day, the day in 1945 when the UN Charter entered into the force and thus marking the 77th anniversary of the UN. I am very honored to welcome on this occasion our very first guest on Who Rules the World podcast, Mr. Stefane Dujeric, spokesperson for the United Nations Secretary General. Stefane, thank you for joining us today and welcome to Who Rules the World. Thank you so much, Lucia. Great to be here. Stefane was first appointed as spokesperson in 2005 by then Secretary General Kofi Annan um, and later in 2014 by the Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. Prior to this role, he oversaw the work of the United Nations news site and also was the director of communications for the United Nations development program UNDP. So when we first think of the main reason why the UN was created, we think of the very known phrase that UN was founded as a body that could put an end to all the worlds on this earth. Yet here we are today, 77 years later, still fighting cruel wars, still fighting to achieve fundamental human rights, to eradicate hunger and diseases, and also to save our world from climate crisis. But despite that, we would most certainly not want to envision the world without the UN. So Stefane, why is the United Nations Day and the creation of the United Nations so important both today and then also if we take a look back to the history, how was the UN even born decades ago? So the United Nations was you know, created in 1945 out of the horrors of the Second World War, this global conflict which engulfed so many parts of the, of the planet. And the term United Nations uh, really came about, if I'm not mistaken, around 1942 to describe all the countries of the world who had joined the fight against the Nazi powers, uh, against the Nazi regime, and also against uh, Imperial Japan. So the term existed before the creation of the organization. And I think the, the, the best goal of the United Nations was really, the best way to describe the goal of the UN was what former Secretary Doug Hammarskjöld said, that the UN was not created to take mankind to heaven, but to save humanity from hell. Uh, the opening of the charter is uh, to save us from the future generations from the scourge of war. Now, of course, you know, has conflict been eliminated since 1945? Of course not. We see it all around us and, and today. Has there been a global world war since 1945? No. Has there been a nuclear war since 1945? No. What has the UN achieved since 1945? Well, I mean, I think it's a whole host of issues from, as I said, preventing global conflict, feeding millions of people around the world, uh, creating the Sustainable Development Goals, which helped lift hundreds of millions of people from poverty, creating peacekeeping, 
which was not envisioned in, in the charter, but has played such a critical role, being such a, an important part in the fall of the apartheid regime in South Africa in the 1990s. And I could go on and on. So there, there are always things to be critical about the UN, but the UN in itself, I think, has achieved so much through the collective will of its members. So you already now mentioned some of the more you've been more focused on the issues that the UN has been dealing with. Um, and of course, when we're speaking about the name of the podcast, Who Rules the World, we are not only thinking about the countries and certain people and organizations, uh, but as you already mentioned, also the issues in the world and the challenges, challenges and achievements. Um, that are shaping the global agenda. Uh, how would you say that the global agenda has changed during all the years, either from the beginning of the UN or even during the 22 years that you've been present here? What were some of the biggest shifts um, and what are the issues that had remained the same and what are some of the new agenda items? It's a big question. What has changed since 1945? I think first and foremost, the, the makeup of the United Nations. We started with 50, I think, if I'm not mistaken, signed on to the charter. We now have 193 member states. So the voices around the table have changed. Uh, and though the new voices are really belong to the global south, countries that uh, tr transition from being uh, colonies with no voice to being independent states, with a strong voice, uh, with needs and need to be heard around the table, just like the founding members. What also has changed, I think, and this is something we, we, we think and we talk about a lot, is where the power lies, right? If you look back to 1945, the state institutions had a monopoly on almost every aspect of our lives. And now there are so many players that have a real impact on how we live and, and the future of the planet. And by that, I mean, you know, multinational corporations, uh, social media companies. I mean, the whole tech world sits outside of the sort of normative world of, of the UN and of, of, of regular companies. Who's able to wield violence? I mean, you have an explosion of, we've seen an explosion of, of armed groups. Um, civil society has a much greater voice now than it did 50 or 60 years ago. So the challenge, I think, for all of us at the UN, and I mean both those of us who work at the UN and for the member states who work at the UN, is how do we enlarge the table to ensure that those voices that need to be heard are also heard? You can't think about the future of technology or the future of the internet of artificial intelligence without having the companies at the table because they don't really belong to any country. They're not regulated by, by any country. You can't talk about climate change without having large investors and funds and civil society also sit at the table. So to me, that is really the biggest change that we've seen is, is the shape of the world that has moved from strictly a member state-based world order to a much more chaotic and less coordinated place. And that's that's been a challenge that we all have to grapple with. So you now mentioned the 
chaotic world of many actors. They also see that the these new actors are they also leading the agenda or there is the agenda still led by the member states. And also said it's very uncoordinated. How do you see the future of coordination? Is there any big plans on how to involve more people? I mean, obviously, one of those plans is also including young people. We have we are here as uh, EU youth delegates and there's over 40 or 50 youth delegates around the world. But is there any other plans on how to involve all these sectors to have a coordinated response and not just everything? It, it needs so silences all around the UN system. On the youth end, uh, the Secretary General uh, created an office of the youth envoy uh, to ensure that voices, youth voices are, are heard. Uh, it is incumbent on member states to also uh, have more youth delegates. Let, let's be honest, um, I think if it wasn't specifically for the youth movements on climate that we saw in 2016, 2017, with uh, whether it was in Scandinavia or in Africa or in the US, that, that really triggered a global mobilization on climate change. I don't think you would have had the, the progress that we've made on, on climate, and we still have a long way to go, but in terms of also just the understanding of the importance of tackling climate change. And I, I truly believe that, that we would not be where we are today in terms of awareness, if not action, had it not been uh, for youth mobilization. And I think organizations that ignore the young, member states and societies that ignore the young do it at their peril. We're all students of, of history, I don't think we've seen many revolutions led by old people, right? And so it's about ensuring that the concerns uh, and the voices of youth are really incorporated in, in our policies and in, in, in the way we work and not just, a, not just an afterthought. And I would say the same, you know, just to stick maybe on climate because it's, so it's, it's so important. Um, you know, we can't move forward on climate unless uh, we have discussions with insurance companies, with large scale pension funds, with ratings agencies, with industry, obviously, whether it's dirty industry or clean industry, because they played a critical role. Governments can create a regulatory framework, but now the, 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 the strength of non-governmental entities is so strong that unless they're brought around the table and have a voice, it's hard to, to have any progress. The challenge for us is that we are at our heart and by our charter, a member state organization. So the people who actually vote and who take decisions are member states. And so we have powers now, whether it's in the business or in the foundation world that don't have as much accountability, but whose opinion, whose actions matter and they also need to be at the table. And now that you're speaking about also multinational corporations, for example, having a big influence um, to the on the UN, the thing that there was, or even other other groups as, as well, the thing that there was a pinpoint in the history of the UN that we could mark as, you know, this is where the UN was more than just the countries sitting within the UN. This is now the UN is now people's UN, if I can say so, or even organizational like corporational UN. You know, everything in the UN world works on a slow boil, right? So the, the temperature changes slowly. But, you know, if you look 
If you look at apartheid uh, and the fight against apartheid, it also involved uh, countries, uh, push, people pushing their companies to stop doing business in white controlled South Africa. So, I mean, I think since the, the, the 70s and 80s, and it grown exponentially in the 80s and 90s, and now in the, in the, in the, in the 21st century, it's a trajectory that we're, uh, we're increasingly on. Well, now if we move a bit further from just the countries and organizations and the agenda, obviously a very important role within the UN is also in the hands of the press, which has probably, I mean, the press has been in the UN since the very beginning, uh, but honestly, in the recent years and with the rise of the social media and all the technologies, its role has risen. Um, So from 24th to 31st of October, uh, we're also commemorating the UN media and information literacy week. And in that context, how do you see the importance of the press within the UN? It's also role in the future. And obviously you work with the press every single day. Uh, I watched your noon briefings, which are tackling important topics, but are also very entertaining, if I may add. Um, so you being so involved, how do you see the role of the press growing in the next years? Well, the the role of of the media has always been important, uh, and it's it's been important since uh, even you know for the UN before the UN was officially created, there were UN information centers to kind of work with local journalists to propagate the idea of a United Nations organization. I work here at the UN with a group of of journalists who are accredited to the United Nations, have their offices here. There are about 150 of them. And it's fascinating because it is representative of the UN writ large. So you have journalists from every region of the world who are all um, dedicated to covering the UN, covering the UN in a way that makes sense for their home audience and to explain the relevance of the organization uh, to, to their home countries. The challenge that we have in, in communicating about the UN is that on one hand, we have in our logo, I would say the world's most recognizable logo, right? You see the UN, lo- you see that logo, you know what organization we're talking about. However, unlike you know the logo for McDonald's, Starbucks, or Shell Oil, which is highly, which are all highly recognizable, there is no brand management in the UN. So, so many different parts of of the UN can speak on behalf of the organization. And that's why the press is so important because they need to explain to their readers the different component parts of the UN. So when the Security Council fails to act on Syria or on Ukraine, the headline is often the UN fails to act, but it needs to be explained that it's only part of the UN, right? that the Security Council isn't the only part of the UN, that you have the General Assembly, that you have the Secretary General. So we really rely on the press to, to get our story out in a way that is explained properly and that is understandable. We also, of course, use social media a lot, like every organization. And I think like every organization, institution, I'm not sure we, we use it correctly uh, because we're all, it's, it's a moving target. Things change all the time, and we really have to do it by trial and error. But it is a, a formidable way for us to communicate directly with people about the, the work of the UN and how to tell human stories. Because it's one thing about what happens within the halls of the General Assembly, 
it's a different thing about how uh, the UN impacts the lives of people, whether it's in Ukraine, in, in Somalia, or in, you know, or in Honduras. So continuing maybe speaking about your work, because it's obviously very interesting and very important. You've now been the, in the role of the spokesperson to the Secretary General for almost 17 years. Um, and you've been a part of it during multiple changes, crises and challenges uh, that are happening within the international community. Uh, would you mind sharing with us maybe uh, some of the more challenging moments or some of the moments where you didn't know what to do, what steps to have, or maybe how to communicate to the public, um, or just some maybe interesting or funny anecdotes from your work? In broad terms, the most challenging times for the Secretary General and therefore for the person who speaks on his behalf is when the relations between member states are at their lowest, especially within the Security Council and especially within the permanent five members, right? Because it reduces our, the bandwidth in which the Secretary General can, can speak. Because we get, sometimes we, you know, I, I feel like a bit like a ping pong ball because every side is trying to get you uh on their side everybody's happy to criticize the un but every member states also wants to get a bit of that un legitimacy uh on their side because it's it's important for for their standing in in, in the world i mean you know the the most moving parts of what i get to do is when i travel with the secretary general and we go to the field and we see the people that we help right and at the briefing i will talk about you know two and a half million people facing famine and hunger in Somalia. It's these numbers that are mind numbing. But when you go to the field and you see uh, the people that rely on us to feed them, that rely on us to survive, it's extremely humbling and it's extremely moving. The, the other part that I really love is going to the field and meeting my colleagues who work in the field because the UN is really a collection of for the most part, truly amazing people, right? And I remember meeting a young man in, uh, in 2017 in Northern Uganda who was working for UNHCR, helping feed people. He was, he was Syrian, he was from Aleppo. And so while his hometown was being bombed in the middle of a civil war, he was in Northern Uganda helping people. And to me, that embodies the kind of the sacrifice that so many of my colleagues who work in the field make that they're really there working for the benefit of humanity. The fun part of the job is, is having kind of a, um, a, I would say a jump seat to history, sitting in these meetings when you see the Secretary General negotiate, negotiate hard, uh, and, and you're there, you're witnessing history. And I think for, you know, whether yourself who studies international relations or all of us who at one point were young and students and, and to be there, to be on the inside and see how things are done uh, is fascinating. And, and what I tell my, my colleagues is never to lose your sense of awe, right? Never to forget the privilege that you have in working for this organization, that you have in, in working in my particular job, that the things you get to see, the work in which you get to participate and have a voice in is truly, truly a privilege. Um, and the day that gets old is the day you have to leave. And I've been at this now for a long time. I'm getting old, but the job's not getting old.
right? I'm still get that sense of of excitement and and stress and 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 fun, frankly, uh, that I get every day when I when I brief. It's nice to hear that you're not retiring or thinking about a retirement just yet. Um, I was just when I was watching today the the briefing, um, I was just thinking about this awe when you had so many things, so many topics to cover, and you seem to know all of them and you seem to know everything about these topics. Um, and I was thinking it must be so amazing to have all this information and understand it. And because it's more and more important, obviously, nowadays when we're just so bombarded by so many information on every single step we take to you know be still able to focus on what matters um and it seems like you have it down and you're doing an amazing well, job I, mean, I think thank you you know the thing is is that in this job you have to know very little about a lot of things mm -hmm. right uh because you have to be able to answer one or two maybe three questions on a lot of topics but you don't have the capacity and i don't have the brain size to actually know a lot about these issues because otherwise i mean you know we my brain is rather my the memory storage in my brain is rather limited and so you have to figure out what you actually need to know and what you don't need to know mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's it's a balance that you have to to keep and when you don't know it's very important to say that you don't know right because when you're speaking on behalf of an organization, speaking publicly on behalf of an organization, if you say something wrong, you're taking, you're having a real impact, right? You're taking an organization with you. If you say, I don't know, then it just, it's on you and you look unprepared. Mm -hmm. But is there a topic or an issue that is dear to your heart and, or the one that has more brain capacity or it takes them more, uh, more storage in your brain? Well, you know, during during the um, uh, last year, we had uh, budget uh, issues at the UN, and we had to shut down the escalators. And I got so many questions from the journalists about the escalators that I need. <laughs> I I called one of the maintenance guys, and he gave me, you know, ten minutes crash course on how escalators work and how much energy they they consume. So um, those are the silly things I have to know about, but. When I talk about, I, I think the thing that's closest to my heart is when I talk about the humanitarian crises, you know, we, we say, uh, you know, 100,000 people were displaced. And I try not to use the word people. And I try to say men, women, and children, because you have to remember, you're talking about 100,000 human beings, right? Mm -hmm. And it's so easy to get numb by the numbers and by the pain that I, I think I think of them almost, and I think of them when I speak, when I talk about you know floods in Chad and how many people were displaced or, or in Pakistan. In my head, I have those people as I, as I speak, and I try to be their, uh, their voice because there's so many people who don't have a voice on this planet. I mean, we're all, you know, those of, those of us around the microphone here, those of us who, you know, the people who are listening to this podcast, my sense is that 99.99% of them have a pretty comfortable life and have everybody has their own struggles, but they have a voice. And we have to think of the billions of people who don't have a voice. And I think it's our job at the UN to ensure that they do have a voice and that they're, they're somehow heard. 
So thinking about all those men, women, and children, how would you envision the perfect UN? The, the perfect UN, in a way, is the UN where every member state lives up to the commitments they've made when they signed on to the Charter, when they signed on to the Universal Declaration of, of Human Rights. The, the perfect UN is the one where everyone sits down around the table and realizes that so many of the problems that we're trying to solve, climate change, humanitarian problems, health issues, terrorism issues, can only be solved with global solutions. So now we come to the end of the first ever episode of Who Rules the World podcast. And my last question to Stefan would be, if you have any food for thought for our listeners, for the young, for the curious, um, or just anyone who stumbles upon this podcast somewhere in the podcast world. My, my message is pretty simple, and that's get involved and don't sit on the sidelines. And to do good, you don't need to work for, for the UN. You can do good by working, volunteering for a local association. You can do good by working, choosing to work for a company in the private sector that does good. I mean, there's nothing wrong with wanting to make money and improve your life and so on, but you have the choice of where you work. You have the choice of where you put your brain power. And if we're going to get over the challenges of climate change, the challenges of, of global health pandemics, the, the, the challenges that we have to fight against totalitarianism. It will only be if individuals do the right thing. Um, and there's so many ways to do the right thing, but it's about really thinking about where, where you're going to give the gift of yourself and what are you gonna do with it? And on that note, thank you very much, Stefan, for being our very first guest on this podcast. We are looking forward to see where the podcast goes, where the, the noon briefings at the UN go, um, and hopefully we are on our way to achieve the perfect or even semi-perfect United Nations. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lucia. This was... Who Rules the World podcast by European Union Youth Delegates Lucia and Nadia. WRW coming soon with next episode on SoundCloud and other platforms.